Hey, Slav Connection listeners. One of our bylines in many of our episodes is that in looking at the now, we always try to remember and bring in the past and any lessons that can be learned. Keeping that in mind, we spoke with Dr. Douglas Salvage, research associate at the Institute for History of the Humboldt University in Berlin. We first sat down with Dr. Salvage in October last year to chat about Soviet-era KGB disinformation campaigns. Then, just recently, recorded a bit of a supplemental episode when we noticed that a lot of what we were looking at in the past was happening again in Ukraine. For this episode, I was joined by Sergio. Sergio, what'd you think? I thought it was a delightful and truly fascinating conversation with Dr. Selvage. We went over the uh, morphing of uh, previously existing Russian conspiracies and misinformation regarding sort of the origin of the AIDS virus and how those same patterns are being used by Russian disinformation today and part of the Russian state's justification for this war of aggression. So, yeah, it was a tremendous conversation, and I hope that our listeners enjoy it. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. excited to have you on the pod this morning, this afternoon for you. Could you tell us a little bit before we kind of get really get into the nitty gritty of your research, you know, what your general research interests are, what you've been working on lately? Well, recently I've been working a lot on cooperation between the East German Ministry of State Security, also known as the Stasi and the uh, Soviet secret police, the KGB. December, I had a new book out, a collection of essays in German with a German colleague about uh, relations between the KGB and Stasi. I've also worked quite a bit on so-called active measures or basically covert psychological warfare of the East during the Cold War. And I've written extensively about the KGB's AIDS disinformation campaign, for which they also had assistance, especially from the East German Stasi. Yeah, the Stasi codename was Operation Denver. We actually don't know the KGB codename. A lot of times they say the KGB codename was infection, but that's also, there's no evidence to support that. The operation was basically started in 1985 and the KGB tried to spread the thesis around the world through the Soviet press and then through the international press that the uh, human immunodeficiency virus, the virus that causes AIDS, was developed initially as a biological weapon by the U.S. government at a U.S. laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland. A lot of times, the Soviet bloc, they began their active measures by putting things in their own press, and they were hoping that somebody in the West would quote it, and that's what happened in this case. Uh, It was in, I think it was September 1985. There was an article published in a Soviet uh, newspaper Literaturnaya Gazeta, uh, the literary gazette, which was basically for intellectuals. KGB tended to place a lot of disinformation in this particular newspaper. Why is not clear, but they clearly had good connections there. And they were waiting for somebody in the West. They're hoping the U.S. government would pick up on this. Oh, the Soviets accused us of developing AIDS as a bioweapon. And they hoped the U.S. government would respond. But actually, the U.S. government ignored it. And so they <laughs> published a follow-up article saying, yeah, this is what happens when, you know, we, we put out the truth about what the U.S. government's up to. Then the U.S. press, there's sort of a conspiracy of silence, basically claiming somehow the U.S. press was being silenced about it. But a certain stroke of luck came along. And this stroke of luck for the KGB was uh, a, a man named Lyndon LaRouche. 
Well, the KGB had always sort of accused Lyndon LaRouche of working for the CIA, which, you know, there's no evidence to support that idea. But LaRouche, for whatever reason, they, he tended also to have people apparently who were following the Soviet press trying to pick up things. And so LaRouche basically picked up on what the Soviets were writing. He republished a translation of the article from Literatnaya Gazette in English in his executive intelligence review. And, but he provided this very leading title where he's basically admission by the Soviets that they had basically created the AIDS virus. So it sort of went back and forth a few rounds then between LaRouche and the, and the Soviets, where LaRouche basically said, oh, it's a Soviet bioweapon. And the KGB said, see, this is the CIA in the US. They're saying it's a Soviet bioweapon. It's actually just LaRouche. But interestingly, some of the people associated with LaRouche picked up on one aspect of the, of the Soviet thesis, and that was Fort Detrick, Maryland. I mean, already in 1983, there had been, you know, conspiracy theories spreading in the gay community in the United States that, well, maybe this is just a U.S. government bioweapon. Maybe they're trying to kill all of us off because the Reagan administration responded very slowly to the AIDS crisis when they thought at first, oh, this is a gay disease, which of course wasn't true. Well, as they saw that the numbers were higher, you know, as percentage of the population, more African-Americans were being infected. They said, well, maybe this is a bioweapon. Right. So all this goes back to the idea whenever there's an epidemic, whenever there's a pandemic, there's this tradition of scapegoating. It's like in the Middle Ages when, you know, there was some plague coming about, they would blame the Jews in the village. Right. And the same thing happened when HIV AIDS came as an epidemic first. Oh, it's the gays are guilty or, you know, well, the KGB just sort of stepped in and said, okay, this is an interesting conspiracy theory. Let's add this one element to it, Fort Detrick, Maryland, because we're going to attack the U.S. bioweapons program, get back at them for, you know, saying that we were using biological weapons in Afghanistan. And so that's where they cooked up this whole campaign. And that's where, at 85, why they placed the article in the newspaper. And, you know, they picked up on something LaRouche was writing because they followed LaRouche very closely, claiming he was involved with the CIA. So we've already chatted a little bit about KGB active measures, covert disinformation campaigns that Russia ran, or rather the Soviet Union ran during the later end of the Cold War. But you've written that you've been seeing echoes, if not blatant, just recycling in the unfolding war in Ukraine, particularly last month when Russia put out a claim that the U.S. is funding and secretly developing biological weapons in Ukrainian laboratories. What are these supposed claims? What are they hoping to achieve here? Well, the claims are quite broad, and they're trying to achieve a, ju a justification for their war. Actually, there's so many different ways. They, they just keep pounding on these themes from different directions, picking them up in different contexts. So one of the reasons that they were... It actually sort of surprised me. Uh, they already tried to claim that Ukraine was being run by fascists today as sort of a justification for carrying out their special military operation or actually their war, their war of aggression against Ukraine. And then it seemed almost gratuitous that they started adding, you know, new elements to it. And one of these elements was to basically claim that uh, there were biological weapons laboratories in Ukraine that were basically being run by the Ukrainian government in cooperation with the United States. And this is like an echo of an echo of an echo of an echo that goes all the way back to the Cold War. 
you could all go all the way back to the Korean War, where there were these accusations that the United States was using bacteriological warfare in Korea based on epidemics there, which were naturally occurring epidemics, partly caused by all of the deaths in the Korean War. Uh, war brings disease with it. But at the time, China and the Soviet Union accused the United States government of bacteriological warfare as well as the North Koreans. But there were no truths to these accusations. But still, it was, and it was directly by the Soviet government. Now, in the 1980s, there was this one active measure I talked about in 1983. It was with the Patriot in India, this uh, newspaper in India that had been covertly financed, allegedly, by the Soviet, by the KGB, and where they liked to place materials, liked to place articles. And this article claimed the title was AIDS May Invade India. And it talked about secret U.S. experiments in neighboring Pakistan at a biological weapons laboratory set up by the U.S. government, right? And basically the claim in the Indian newspaper is, well, look, the Americans are doing this across the border in Pakistan. It could spread to India, right? This new dread disease of AIDS, thanks to this U.S. biological weapon, it could now spread to India. And that was sort of what they later used in 1985 to launch this worldwide disinformation campaign. And interestingly, this campaign also built off of an earlier act, active measure, cockroaches, where they accused a U.S. scientist who was doing research basically on mosquitoes in Lahore, Pakistan, of using it to spread basically biological weapons, of trying to experiment with mosquitoes as carriers for biological weapons. This was in 1982. This researcher then from the University of Maryland had to close down his laboratory, but actually the researcher was well known because he had developed certain theories that led to like treatment of dreadful epidemic diseases, and they tried to ruin his reputation. He had to close his laboratory. There was an inquiry by in the Indian parliament, actually by the right wing, interestingly, not the left wing, asking, well, you know, is, is he moving his lab to India or that sort of thing? So that's why I think in 1983, they said, hey, let's you know build on that and ask about HIV AIDS and see what's going on there. But that was in 1983. Interestingly, then flash forward to the 2000s, and then there are these new accusations by the Russian government about, for example, biological research facilities in Georgia, biological research facilities in Moldova, where the U.S. government was cooperating with those governments to basically enhance their biological research capabilities, uh, you know, against viruses and dread disease, sort of like laboratories attached more to their health departments, like the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, to try to prevent future epidemics. Now, there's a lot of irony about all of this because uh, at, after the end of the Cold War, there was sort of this non-Luger cooperative threat reduction program in the 1990s, and actually Russia supported it and was involved in it. And the idea was, okay, there are all these old research facilities in the former Soviet Union where there were scientists working on, hate to say it, weapons of mass destruction or doing research on biological weapons, whether defensive or actually a lot of offensive, or doing research on atomic weapons or chemical weapons. And the thing is, you know, after the Soviet Union falls apart, what's going to happen with these researchers? What's going to happen with these research facilities? What's going to happen with these weapons, right? And so basically the non-Luger program was this idea where you would help them to build down these old capabilities, develop weapons of mass destruction, 
employ the scientists who have been involved in these programs so that they wouldn't like be employed by, well, I don't know, North Korea, Iran, Iraq to go work there, uh, to do their work, their magic one more time. And basically as a way to try to, you know, move things to a more civilian direction. And interestingly, you could see also, you know, with the Budapest Memorandum, this commitment by Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons, basically they gave them back to Russia for, you know, uh, demobilizing them or whatever. This is all part of this cooperative program in the 1990s where the United States, Russia, former republics of the Soviet Union were cooperating to reduce this threat. But then in the 2000s, as the Russian government of Putin becomes more aggressive and more revisionist, early 2000s, they started reviving also the old active measures of propaganda. Whenever there's a new epidemic like Zika, SARS, they start using the old sort of things from Operation Denver. Oh, there's this dread disease spreading. It's some virus that hasn't been around for a while or it seems to be a new virus. Oh, it was developed by the United States, the bioweapon at Fort Detrick. Whatever it is, it just sort of goes down the list. They recycle the old propaganda now through things like Russia Today, Sputnik News, all of these different uh, platforms, right? Also with the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, you see echoes of this article from 1983. Well, you know, the United States is, you know, allegedly working on bioweapons and neighboring Georgia. When's that going to come across the border to Russia? Meaning this is a threat. And there's always sort of this latent hint that maybe Russia should do something about this. What's particularly uh, new in a sense is also that these echo chambers in the West Back in the 1980s, in the era of active measures, they would try to find certain publications, maybe that were left-leaning and tended to support the Soviet Union, broadcasts, radio broadcasts. But today, they don't even really don't have to make an effort. They just put it out there, and somebody's willing to pick it up, which brings us back to COVID. It's like the perfect storm, because with COVID, the same disinformation was recycled by Russia that... COVID was a U.S. biological weapon developed at Fort Detrick, and they were sort of pushing this. But then really the Chinese picked up on it, and that was partly because some people in the Trump administration were saying, well, you know, it probably leaked out of this lab in Wuhan. Some of them were suggesting, well, maybe this, you know, Chinese actually tampered with it somehow and they made a super virus. There's a new development to use Occam's razor, the idea that the, what is it, the simplest possible explanation for a given phenomenon is likely the correct explanation, barring lots of evidence to the contrary. Other viruses seem to come out of nowhere, and it's the same, in a sense, with COVID. So you actually begin this most recent article specifically with this March 11th United Nations Assembly. So I was hoping you can just tell us a little bit more about like what actually happened during that event and what what was kind of trying to be peddled, I guess, by the by the Russian delegation there. Well, basically, the uh, Russian delegation was claiming that the United States had been cooperating with Ukraine and biological weapons research. And what, this, what the Russians did as part of their invasion of Ukraine, it seems that they occupied some biological research facilities, or maybe they had spies and some other ones, but I think they just basically occupied you know, some of these facilities. And these facilities, uh, because of the war, because some of these pathogens were inside, it was unlikely that they would spread to the general population. But if you're a scientist working there, 
and let's say a missile lands in your lab, well, guess what? The germs are going to escape. And if you happen to be there, you're going to die. Right. So there was basically this advisory by the Ukrainian government that they should destroy all of these pathogens they were doing research on cholera, whatever it was, they should stop their research, destroy all samples in a responsible manner, basically, you know, using the best procedures. And this Russians, of course, picked up on these documents and they picked up on like documents on cooperation between the, you know, the U.S. government, uh, some cases, I think it was the U.S. Department of Defense and the Ukrainian Health Ministry as part of this threat reduction program for doing research. Also, there were apparently agreements with other governments that they brought up later, like Germany. And so what the Russian delegates did at the UN is what had, was going on also in Russian propaganda. Also, the Russian Defense Ministry did this. They took these documents, they scanned them, put them online. And this is typical of disinformation, but also uh, conspiracy theorists is they'll take a document and they'll say, this document says X, Y, and Z. But if you read the document and you know the context, it doesn't say X, Y, and Z. So for example, there might be an agreement of cooperation between the US government and the Ukrainian government. And they say, oh, here's the proof. Here's the agreement. Here's the date. You can read it all right here in Ukrainian, <laughs> which some people in the United States wouldn't necessarily bother to read. And then they say, this document says here, the US government says it's going to create, cooperate in developing biological weapons. Well, that's not what the document says. Or there's a document saying, you know, we've been ordered by the Ukrainian government to destroy all of our samples of different pathogens, right? And it lists the pathogens. And of course, these are sort of the same pathogens that other sort of labs around the world are doing research on. And of course, yes, some of them are dangerous. That's in a sense why they're doing research on them is to try to prevent their spread. Also, there were certain pathogens that could be spread by birds and they're doing research on some of these pathogens, which later led to this accusation by the Russian government that they were, you know, basically weaponizing birds to bring various pathogens to Russia. And but of course, that's crazy enough that is picked up by certain spheres in the Internet and social media. For example, a lot of the COVID-19 denialists, Querdinker, QAnon started to pick up on this because it sort of fit into their earlier narrative about COVID-19 being developed as a bioweapon. And there was Russian propaganda about how in Ukraine, the United States was further developing COVID-19 as a bioweapon. A lot of these people took the bait earlier and integrated it into their conspiracy theories. And guess what? Began to spread it and multiply it. It's like free media, free publicity for Moscow. I think you've pointed out one of the worrying threads here, as with conspiracy theories, as with these disinformation campaigns, is that there's always a grain of truth or that there is cherry picked evidence that is factual, but it is applied in a way that supports their argument. So, right, Ukraine does have biological labs. They were supported by the United States. And so it, it's being manipulated in such a way, and the internet is only exacerbating the problem. And how do you combat this sort of thing now? You put something on the internet and it's gone. Anybody can pick up on it. And then, as, as you mentioned before, also it gets put into echo chambers. It gets picked up by politicians, activists. Is there anything you've noticed that's being done to sort of push back on, on these efforts? Well, one thing that a lot of, of course, I'm a historian. I tend to look at historical themes. But a lot of the people who are trying to combat disinformation nowadays, uh, one, one problem that I've noted, especially in the, you know, this was talked about in the 1980s, is 
one of the problems in combating such disinformation theses is, let's say, for example, let's go back to the Patriot article. The U.S. government, later when they started spreading the AIDS disinformation, the KGB and the Soviet government, they, what the U.S. responded, there was this active measures working group that was supposed to combat disinformation. It was composed of representatives from different agencies. It was basically spearheaded by the U.S. Information Agency, uh, Charles Wick, who was a very <laughs> powerful director at the time. But then, you know, there were representatives from the State Department, which was very much involved, CIA, FBI, and they're all on the lookout for different Soviet disinformation themes, and then they would try to combat it. Now, one of the problems they came up against is, let's say the U.S. State Department, they did this, they would hold a press conference and they'd say, you know, there's this accusation by the Soviet Union or by uh, Soviet newspapers and the Soviet disinformation that, you know, uh, they claim that there's this article in this uh, newspaper, Patriot in India, and uh, this is basically a lie. The United States uh, isn't developed, never developed HIV as a bioweapon, and it's untrue what they said. And by the way, this newspaper didn't exi doesn't exist. That was basically a case of bad research. And then, of course, Moscow could hammer back. And what they did was they published articles one of their disinformation outlets, which was interestingly enough, literary gazette in, in the Soviet Union, they said, it exists, it exists, oh boy. And they were talking, basically attacking the State Department speaker and saying, well, here's a copy of the uh, article from Patriot. You did. And what happened was they didn't look far enough back in the newspaper. And they, you know, somebody had mentioned the Patriot articles from 1984 was actually from 1983. It was a year earlier. So this allowed Moscow to multiply this information. So denials, when you say that's not true, Basically, the U.S. government, in a sense, was giving free publicity to the original disinformation thesis. So that's one of the problems with debunking disinformation is, in a sense, no publicity is bad publicity. You know, it's just like what Paris Hilton used to do, right? You get <laughs> into the press for these, you know, things you supposedly did that were bad, but that's still publicity and you could still use it to build your own career. And you can do that with a disinformation thesis, right? If I tell you, don't think about an elephant... What do you think about? What do you see in your head? In a sense, that's the problem with denying. So debunking doesn't work. So one of the things that people are talking about is pre-bunking, meaning in a sense, we sort of know what themes tend to be picked up by Russian disinformation or probably Chinese disinformation as well. And so when something comes out in the press, you basically attack preemptively explain something before they're able to be weaponize and misuse it as disinformation. Now, of course, for some groups who are prone to conspiracy theories or true believers or whatever, maybe you won't stop them from believing it, but at least maybe you'll stop it from spreading. And I think one of the things that needs to be done, and maybe somebody's doing it already, thought about this when I saw this latest uh, accusation by the Russians to justify their war of aggression is we really need to put together an encyclopedia of memes of uh, what we know that the Russians tend to use. So anytime there's a new disease, you know, Operation Denver, bioweapons labs, these things are going to come and you're already there. You already know it's coming and you can basically try to defend against it before it even comes out. Right. It's like uh, knowing the chessboard and how the pieces can possibly move. Exactly.
I had one more question probably kind of about, I guess, precedent for these kinds of conspiracy theories and disinformation. Like like Lara was saying earlier, for any piece of conspiracy or disinformation, usually I think you need to have some some kernel of truth that somehow corresponds to the real world, right? Even if it is just, yeah, there are bio labs in Ukraine, just like in every country, you know, stuff like that. But I mean, I think like I'm thinking back to, for example, the the late aughts, the big scandal with CIA black sites in Poland and Romania, right? The polls say, oh, no, of course, we don't host CIA black sites. And then it turns out, of course, they did. You know, so you have this whole strange dynamic where like the American people don't even know these things exist. The citizens of the nations in which they're hosted have no idea what goes on. You know what I mean? There is kind of a fertile ground for for making claims like this, right? Because how big of a jump is it from there are indeed CIA black sites on the NATO borders to, oh, perhaps there are weaponized bio labs on the on the NATO border, you know, and then coupled with, you know, the rhetoric from Russia about, well, you've got all these missiles pointed straight at Moscow from like 100 kilometers away. I don't know. For me, all these things put together, I can understand the it's fertilizer for this. Right. Well, actually, there are no missiles pointed at Moscow from 100 kilometers away. I'll correct that. <laughs> very good. Very uh, good. I'll pre-bunk that. Uh, nice. But no, uh, but I understand what you're saying. I mean, that's sort of the one of the problems. I mean, yeah, this is one of the things, for example, Catherine Olmsted points out in her book, True Enemies, and she writes about conspiracy theories in the 20th century in the United States and this uh, culture of distrust that arises uh, partly due to government secrecy, uh, partly due to government lying. And certainly one thing that governments can do, if you will, to pre-bunk conspiracy theories is not to engage in covert activities or unless they're absolutely necessary. Well, of course, we can argue about what absolutely necessary is, that there's some transparency on the part of governments and that, of course, not to engage in uh, evil deeds. <laughs> but okay, with the biological weapons labs, I mean, we can go back to Operation Denver in the 1980s. And one thing that helped them sort of refuel the operation was in the Reagan administration in 1986, Douglas Faith, I forget which part of the Defense Department he was at at the time, but he basically, I think he was in charge of biological weapons research. And he basically pushed for an increase in the U.S. budget uh, for research into biological weapons. Now, this was after the United States and the Soviet Union had signed a convention in 1971, basically destroying all their reserves of biological weapons. And there was, of course, UN conventions against the use of biological weapons. But still, there, both countries agreed, and it was according also allowed international law to have defensive programs where you say, okay, somebody could attack us with, let's say, uh, cholera or could try to weaponize cholera somehow. How, we need to do research on cholera, ways of sort of combating it, which means we need to do basic research into cholera. But of course, the data you gather could also be used for offensive biological weapons. Now, interestingly, after the Cold War was over, it's an interesting story about Ken Alabek. He was a Soviet biological weapons researcher who later defected to the West, who left for the West, I think, in the 1990s. And he was sent as an inspector as part of uh, their confidence building measures or whatever. He was sent as an inspector to the United States to look at alleged and real biological weapons facilities in the United States for defensive research. And he was amazed at how small the U.S. program was. 
because he, in a sense, it was truly defensive and it was truly small. Whereas in the Soviet Union, and then even Russia under Yeltsin, they had this massive infrastructure for biological weapons research, including producing biological weapons. And it was, you know, a hundred or a thousand times as large as the U.S. program. And that's another reason why these accusations about bioweapons labs in Ukraine concern me, because I also think that Russia, especially under Putin, they might have started to, you know, demobilize their program under Yeltsin. Although, interestingly, they kept it secret for a long time. It was something that Gorbachev denied or didn't talk about. It was something that Yeltsin denied or downplayed and didn't want to talk about. They eventually, I think, did uh, run it down, turn it down a little bit. But I think I don't know what they're doing today. And I think it's there was talk after the end of the Cold War of uh, treating biological weapons like atomic weapons, where, you know, there's the International Atomic Energy Agency that carries out inspections. And uh, we're talking about doing the same thing with biological weapons. But, you know, the international community has not come that far. And I think it's something that it would be worth doing. But unfortunately, uh, partly thanks to these false accusations and propaganda, and the Soviets were notoriously against on-site inspections, which, you know, that was a real breakthrough uh, under Yeltsin for the biological weapons, finally. I'm very pessimistic, and of course, now that there's a war going on, a war of aggression, I don't think it's going to get off the ground at all. So there's just going to be a lot of mudslinging, especially from Russia. I mean, I'm kind of listening to all of this and I don't, I certainly don't want to end this episode on a, on a grim note, but taking into account how Russia has now moved almost, it's learned its lessons from its covert operations and it's pushed it into the overt. Heads of the Kremlin openly spreading these sort of disinformation and, and effectively lies and in this sort of environment where it's very hard to push back on that and pushing back in itself has repercussions. It's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. As the war continues to unfold, I'm not hopeful on what we're going to see kind of in the long term. Well, I'm not necessarily hopeful either. It's interesting. I've noticed a generational difference that some of us who lived during, you know, as young people during the Cold War, we were sort of used to this idea of there's this danger of nuclear war. We were very scared of it. And we still, we learned about things like, uh, although we didn't necessarily want to, but we learned about things like nuclear brinksmanship. We learned about how, you know, they always threaten to use nuclear weapons and how there's mutually assured destruction. Even after, I mean, there's sort of the duck and cover era where everybody sort of said you could hide under your school desks, sort of like for active shooter drills today, and you wouldn't be, you know, killed by a nuclear weapon if it blew up down the street, uh, which of course wasn't true, it turned out. But, you know, in the 80s, there was, we still had some drills. We, we knew that one reason they wouldn't do this is if they launched some nuclear weapons and destroyed the United States, the Soviet Union would be destroyed. They would all die with mutually assured destruction. That's why they wouldn't do it. So in that sense, I think that some of the scare tactics by Putin, he's basically returning to sort of this Cold War blustering. 
And in the 1950s, for example, the United States would have responded, John Foster Dulles, he always talked about going to the brink and said, you know, swift and massive retaliation, whatever the Russians do, if they attack, swift and massive retaliation, meaning, you know, we're going to nuke them back to the Stone Age. It was basically what he was saying. And so that's the sort of rhetoric from the 50s again. The, the amount of combined evil that came out of those two brothers is, like, remarkable to me. Anyway, sorry. Well, you can interpret one way or the other. I mean, uh, in a sense, that was the uh, strategy of the Eisenhower administration. I mean, it was one of the reasons why the United States never agreed to no first use of nuclear weapons is because the Soviet Union had conventional superiority in Europe. Basically, if this tank started rolling, they could reach France very quickly. And the United States uh, didn't want to, even though it had a lot of forces, more force than Europe at the time, they basically didn't want to take nuclear weapons, especially tactical nuclear weapons, off the table because they said, well, maybe we'll need this in case there's World War III just to stop the Soviets from overrunning everything. So I don't know. It's not typical for me to defend the Dulles brothers, but... In a sense, this was partly to show the Russians don't start World War III. There are a lot more irresponsible uh, chapters during the Cold War in terms of uh, the United States and nuclear weapons. For example, the Joint Chiefs of Staff always advising Lyndon Johnson and saying, well, we could escalate the war in Vietnam. This doesn't stop basically the communist offensive. We can always go to nuclear weapons, which of course was a non-starter and they knew it, but they just sort of, you know, put it in there. That to me was irresponsible. There was this one episode during the Cold War where uh, I think it was Vice President Nixon and maybe it was John, John Foster Dulles and the National Security Council meeting. They're talking about what was going on in Poland and that, you know, the Russians might invade and they're wondering, well, should we basically, you know, threaten the Russians and say if they invade Poland, you know, uh, we're going to use uh, nuclear weapons and hit their forces basically with tactical nuclear weapons, not long range strategic, but tactical nuclear weapons hit their positions in Ukraine. And Eisenhower's response was, well, basically, if there's a nuclear war, you need to know that you have to use everything you have right away. And it's interesting, a Polish scholar read this document and then sort of know the context. He said, oh, you know, Eisenhower is willing to threaten nuclear war if Russia decided to invade Poland and send more troops into Poland in 1956. And uh, and no, if you knew Eisenhower and his previous disputes uh, in the National Security Council, he's basically saying, you SOBs, you're telling me to use, you know, start a nuclear war. It's not happening. Why are you wasting my time? You know, you know, Eisenhower is knocking them upside the head, basically, and saying, yeah, let's use nuclear weapons. Let's see what happens. Yeah, and as we're watching, like, that line that dictates what's too much keeps getting pushed back a little bit more day by day. So, again, not not looking like a hopeful situation right now. Again, I don't want to end this episode on a, on a downer, but... This is this is very grim stuff, unfortunately, but we really appreciate you coming and like kind of talking it through. Understanding it at least helps. Well, thank you. It's very useful for me because I have to explain this sometimes very complex research in, in a way that other human beings can understand, which is, you know, important, I think, to be able to do that. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinion.
us online at SlobXRadio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 